Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Well, just like last time, this time we're looking at the Reformation in Britain, and in particular, we're going to consider today the dissident groups in the 17th and 18th centuries, including the Puritans, the Baptists, the Quakers, and Unitarians. In addition, Sean Kelly presents a vignette of John Biddle's life and influence. This is Lecture 10 of a History of Christianity class called 500, from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. Here now is Podcast 126, Dissidents in Britain. Number 10, Dissidents in Britain. I looked up the word dissident. It's a person who opposes official policy, especially that of an authoritarian state. It's a very good title for the people we'll be talking about for this time together. In England, especially. I want to talk to you about the the Baptists and the Quakers. I want to say just a couple more words about the Puritans first. Uh, the Puritans were influenced by a man named Robert Brown, uh, was an influential man in that period, who wrote a book. Just listen to the title of this book. A Treatise of Reformation Without Tarrying for Any, and of the Wickedness of Those Preachers Which Will Not Reform Till the Magistrate Command and Compel Them. What do you think his book was about? Pretty clear from the title. And that is the mentality, the mindset of the Puritan. The Puritan does not seek to start a new Christian group, a new Christian denomination, no. A Puritan is looking to put pressure on the Church of England to conform to a reformed viewpoint of Christianity, both in belief and practice. And I mentioned Robert Brown because it was a group of Dutch Brownists who ended up coming to the United States, well, it wasn't the United States then, in the uh, 1620s. We'll get into colonial Christianity, I believe, next time. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But I want to talk to you about the English Baptists and the Quakers before we look at the Unitarians. And uh, Sean Kelly is going to share with us about John Biddle. And uh, then I'll talk about some other Unitarians. But the Baptists are not at all related to the Anabaptists. They just happen to have a similar name because they both believed in baptism of, or in non-baptism of babies, basically. So bapti only believers would be allowed to be baptized. They were founded by John Smith in 1609, an Englishman from Cambridge who fled to Amsterdam to start a congregation with some others from England. So the Baptists begin in 1609 by an Englishman and other English folks but not in England, in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, because of what we just talked about, all this controversy and chaos in England. There were two different types of Baptists in those days, the Arminian and the Calvinist. And so you have general Baptists are those who believe that Christ died for everyone and that people had to choose salvation. Those are Arminian. And then you had particular Baptists, and those are the what we called Reformed, everyone's predestined, Calvinist style of Baptists. But the thing about the Baptists is that they rejected the role of the state in matters of conscience. And in England, that was radical. 
That was radical because in England, it was the king or the queen who determined the faith of the country and enforced that faith in all the different churches of the land. And the Baptists are saying, no, the government has no business in the church. And that's one of the things, their distinctives they stand for. This was seen as radical and possibly even treasonous to be part of one of these separatist groups like the Baptists. And their, their idea was rather than try to fix the church, just leave the church and have their own congregation. Uh, and I know that that had happened in other places, but it, this was kind of uh, groundbreaking in England. One of the more famous Baptists early on was a man named John Bunyan, who lived from 1628 to 1688. And he wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners in 1666. He fought on the side of the parliament and then had a conversion and became a Baptist preacher. So he was a soldier, became a preacher, and he ended up going to prison for 12 years because of all the different uh, political situations happening. And while he was in prison, he wrote this autobiography, The Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he also wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress in 1678, the second part of which he completed in 1684. And so Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, is the story of a man named Christian who discovers a burden on his back and a, a person named Evangelist comes and tells him about his sin and the gospel. And so Christian leaves through the, the narrow gate. This is him leaving through the narrow gate. And he encounters all these different people. And every person has this really obvious name. So there's a man named Talkative that just won't shut up. And then there's a man named Legalist who comes up and tries to convince him to follow the laws of Moses. And, and so on. And uh, it's this fictitious tale, an allegory, that he uses very cleverly to embed his the theology in a way that is entertaining for people to read. And it just is a huge bestseller in England. And Baptist uh, theology really gets uh, spread, spread around, and Protestantism in general. He uh, believed in the importance of introspection, where you examine yourself, you keep a spiritual diary, you see how you're progressing in, in your holiness over time. His book is just huge in England. Another famous Baptist of the same period is Roger Williams, who was born around 1603 and died in 1683. And he's the one that founded the first Baptist church in America, in the state of Rhode Island. He also founded the state of Rhode Island. Providence. Yeah, there's a statue of him. Yep. There's also a park and a zoo. There's a lot of Roger Williams in Rhode Island. We'll come back to Roger Williams when we talk about colonial Christianity next time. But I just wanted to mention him as part of the English Baptists, this early on Baptist group in England. All right, so that's the English Baptists. Uh, just for the sake of your profile sheets, the group that I, I put on there as Anglicans is the same as the Church of England, and is the same as the Episcopalians. So if you have that sheet, it says Anglicans on it. Church of England, Anglicans, Episcopalians, all the same thing, different ways of referring to the same thing. And today, the Church of England has 85 million adherents, 25 million in England, and then 65 outside of England. So 85 million is bigger than the Lutherans, has 75 million, and the Reformed people, followers of John Calvin, also had 75 million. And it's also bigger than the Methodists. Anglicanism is huge in Africa, too. 
Uganda and uh, Nigeria and Africa, other African countries as well. But it's uh, a very large group to this day, uh, all because Henry VIII wanted a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. And uh, so the Church of England starts there. Not really a great start to it, but they um, changed a lot over time until they are an international uh, Christian denomination today. As far as the Baptists go, there aren't just 85 million Baptists like there are Anglicans. There are 100 million Baptists around the world today. And uh, their distinctive is the, the break with the government, really. In believer's baptism, but also the break with the government in the sense of not trying to fix the Church of England, but just being a separatist. And uh, this really flourishes in America. And then we have the Quakers. Quakers is also a, gr a group called the Society of Friends, of which there are 400,000 today, roughly speaking. All these numbers are estimates, by the way. I don't know how they come up with them, but it's just what I have available to me. So 400,000 or so Quakers. George Fox was born in 1624 and lived till 1691. He came out with his book, Inner Light, in 1647. And uh, sometime after then, he is first called a Quaker. I think it was like 1650, uh, which you can use as a start date for the Quakers, about 1650 or so. Um, and so his idea is that the Word of God is not confined to the Bible. He's very similar to the spiritualists that I had mentioned, Caspar Schwenkfield being the prime representative of them in the uh, 1500s. He believed that God spoke to you directly, that it's not, it's not just Scripture. It's, it's this inner voice or inner light. Christ is the light that enlightens every man that comes into the world, he would say. Anyone can receive this inner light. So the Quakers are radically egalitarian. Everyone is considered equal. Men and women preachers. He rejects all social distinctions. We're talking about an English society in the 17th century. Everyone knows their order. Everyone knows whether they're a nobility or they're a peasant or how high or up or down they are. And, the, and George Fox and the Quakers are saying, no, none of those distinctions matter at all. It was customary in those days to call somebody thou if you were familiar with them and you if you were respecting them if, as a form of respect, which is the opposite of what we would think. But uh, he, they would just get rid of that distinction. And so the Quakers would address everyone the same as a thou. Uh, they were very controversial. They could not hold office. They were pacifists, and they were dead against slavery. As egalitarians, that makes sense. So they're the ones that are really operating and running the Underground Railroad or railway in America during abolition. They believe in no sacraments, uh, no baptism, no communion. Everything is this inner spiritual witness. And uh, they believe in, uh, at least originally, something called total silence. So going to a Quaker worship service, everyone would come and no one would say anything until the spirit moved. And then David would stand up and say a few words, and then Sue would stand up and say a few words. And it was this unprogrammed worship. To this day, about 11% of Quaker, uh, Quaker churches are still this way, have an unprogrammed worship. The other 89% are more familiar to us in the sense that they have a, a planned preacher ahead of time, the songs are practiced and determined ahead of time, and so on. But originally, the Quakers would wait for that spirit, I guess, to quake them or something. I want to uh, bring up Sean Kelly now, who did a presentation on John Biddle at the One God Seminar 
in Seattle last summer, and I thought it would fit in well with where we are right now. I'm going to cover some English Unitarians after he's, he's done, but I wanted him to share about John Biddle because he's done some of the research on him. All right, so Sean and Matt have done a great job of making this entertaining. It's very difficult to do timeline history and make it entertaining as well, but I will try to do my best. John Biddle, he's important because he's, he's this kind of behind-the-scenes character in Unitarianism. No one's, if you read any popular Unitarian beliefs, you're not really going to see John Biddle unless you look into who they're quoting from and things of that sort, then he gets mentioned. But his own writings, there's very few that exist. And uh, anything that you read about him tends to be from 100 to 150 years later by biographers or by legal dissertations that are written about him. He was born in uh, Gloucestershire. I mispronounced all these words, which I was corrected by an English person in Seattle. But uh, he was born in England there on January 14, 1615, where he attended the free school. And at a very young age, he gained popularity for his academic talent and uh, became sponsored by George VIII Lord Berkeley who also sponsored many of the Kingsmen, and uh, some of the people he sponsored were their playwrights that exist to this day, um, with uh, John Webster and James Shirley and Philip Massinger, but Biddle, at 10 years old, was the youngest, by far the youngest person he sponsored, and uh, he really, uh, and he gained an allowance and was soon able to uh, have tutors, which they only lasted so long because he soon outsmarted them and had to start instructing himself. And just like these people that we've, we've learned about before, which were Calvin and Luther, he had a great uh, understanding of language. So at age 14, he was able to uh, translate. He had the first translations from Latin, the Eclogues of Virgil and Satires of Juvenal. Uh, they, were, they were published in 1634 after review, which shows the accuracy that went into them. And uh, in the same year, he also attended Magdalen Hall at Oxford, which there he also became smarter than all the other students and was able to get independent studies and uh, start to actually look at religion. Although he, uh, he had a, a humanist perspective for philosophy, his religion still seemed to be tainted with uh, church tradition and things of the sort, which is shown in a quote by Joshua Toulman, who was his biographer, uh, he did so philosophize that it might be observed he was determined more by reason than authority. However, in divine things, he did not dissent much from common doctrine. Uh, that said, he wrote a paper which was basically saying you were deemed you were going to hell if you did dancing or anything of the sort, which obviously is not scriptural, but does show that he was still kind of going off church tradition and not going off on his own as far as his belief systems go but that he did care about it enough to write something of the sort. In 1638, he graduated and then went on to pursue his master's. In 1641, he received his master's and was offered a teaching position in his hometown, which he, de he declined. And uh, upon that, the officials reviewed him and offered him a better position at St. Mary de Crypt, which he accepted and was, was met at the gates with a fool, all the officials there and everything of that sort. During this time, he, was, he received a lot of free time and started to actually go into studying the scripture and going to, going to the, the main book itself and not basing it off of tradition, which this is a quote actually by um, Nathaniel Laudner, who is deemed the, the, the founder of Christian critical thinking. He was around in 1730, but he's someone who, who he has this title of the founder of Christian critical thinking, but all the stuff is a lot of it's based off Biddle. So he's another one, Biddle's hidden in his, his works as well. And he says this in regards to 
everything being based off church tradition and someone looking at one, one person and, and basing their thoughts on them and everyone's interpreting other people's thoughts but no one's actually going to the scripture. It says, to remedy this inconvenience, we must go back to the first principles. We must begin again, each of us carefully studying the scriptures for ourselves without the help of commentators comparing one part with another. And when our minds shall by this means have been exposed to the same influences, we shall think and feel in the same manner which I, I think is great, uh, especially which opens up his, his idea and looking at uh, Jesus not being God. So he immerses himself into the New Testament and memorizes the whole New Testament in both English and in Greek, but only up to Revelation 4 because, oh well. And uh, so he, he starts to realize that, that there's, there's some issues regarding the Holy Spirit. He uh, starts writing about that, looking into it a little more. He realizes the Holy Spirit is not what church tradition says, and he comes up with 12 arguments against the deity of the Holy Spirit in 1645, which start out being, reason number one, he that is distinguished from God is not God. The Holy Spirit is distinguished from God, therefore the Holy Spirit is not God. Reason two, he that gave the Holy Spirit to the Israelites is Jehovah alone, though the Holy Spirit is not Jehovah or God. He that speaketh not for himself, the Holy Spirit speaks not for himself, therefore the Holy Spirit is not God. He that is taught is not God. He that hears from another what he shall speak is taught. Christ speaks what he is told, therefore Christ is not God. He that is sent by another is not God. The Holy Spirit is sent by God, therefore the Holy Spirit is not God. He that is not the giver of all things is not God. He that is the gift of God is not the giver of all things. He that is the gift of God himself given, the gift is in the power and at the disposal of the giver. It is therefore absurd to imagine that God can be in the power or at the disposal of another. He that changes place is not God. The Holy Spirit changes place. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not God. He that prays to Christ to come to judgment is not God. The Holy Spirit does so. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not God. In Romans 10, 14, it reads, How shall they believe in him to whom they have not heard? He in whom men have not believed, yet were disciples. He who is not believed in is not God. Men have not believed in the Holy Spirit, yet were disciples. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not God. He that hears from God at the second hand is, is the Christ Jesus. What he shall speak has an understanding distinct from God. He that heareth from God what he shall speak is taught of God. The Holy Spirit does so, therefore the Holy Spirit is not God. He that has a will distinct in number from that of God is not God. The Holy Spirit has a will distinct in number from that of God, therefore the Holy Spirit is not God. And the last one, Biddle also discussed the one verse in the New Testament which the established church quoted to support their view of the Trinity. It is John 5, 7, which reads, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Biddle said the verse was contrary to common sense. It contradicts other verses in the scriptures, and it only signified a union of consent and agreement, but never of essence. Furthermore, the verse did not appear in the ancient Greek copies of the gospel, nor in the Syriac translations, nor in the very old Latin editions. It seemed, therefore, that the verse had been interpolated and was rejected as such by interpreters both ancient and modern. So this brings him to his first arrest on <laughs> December 2nd, 1645, but he was quickly released on bail. And, uh, but this put him in the public spotlight now. And Archbishop Usher 
who was on his way to London, paid a little visit to him. An usher became famous for doing a chronology, chronology on the age of the earth and also not only to the, to the day, but also to the exact time that the earth was created. But he, so he, he's quite famous later on for that. But um, if we want to know how that little conversation with Usher went, we have a little quote, which is, Coming through Gloucester, spake with him all fairness and pity, as well as strength of arguments, to convince him of his dangerous error. A minister of the city of Gloucester told me the bishop labored to convince him, telling him that either he was in a damnable error or else the whole church of Christ, who had in all ages worshipped the Holy Ghost, had been guilty of idolatry. Man was no whit moved either by the learning, gravity, piety, or zeal of the good bishop, but continued obstinate. So I guess we know how that went. Uh, not too well. Um, so six months later, he was summoned to Westminster, and the parliament committed appointed a committee to review him, in which he openly admitted that he did not believe in the deity of the Holy Ghost, and he was committed to five years in custody, which is a lot lighter of a punishment than we've been reading about so far, which would have been death. In 1647, he reprinted the 12 arguments, and on September 6th of the same year, the House ordered the 12 arguments be burned and that Biddle be imprisoned. And now is when he starts to begin his full-on attack of the, the, the whole trinity in itself, and he publishes in 1648 two documents. The first one, a confession of faith touching the Holy Trinity according to the scripture. And here's another good title, the testimonies of Arrhenius, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Novadianus, Theophilus, Origen, as also of Arnobius, Lactanius, Eusebius, Hilary, and Brightman concerning the one God and the persons of the Holy Trinity. So it is one thing in this era of questioning your Christian thinking, which is going on all throughout England, to question the Holy Ghost, but now it's a thing to question the Trinity. And uh, the, the divines push Parliament to procure an ordinance to put any contrary view of the Trinity to death. Now there's no result here because many of these people in Parliament are starting to have different thoughts from each other regarding Christianity. They, they don't agree on everything and they fear to make, such a, to make such an ordinance could soon come back to bite them and that they would be put to death. So the divines then on May 2nd pushed the Parliament to come up with an ordinance against those who oppose the Trinity, which contrary is no good, but oppose, they can all agree that the Trinity is definitely there. So if you oppose the Trinity, now we, now we can come up with that. So it is passed, but luckily it is not acted upon. And the, the ordinance says, you are guilty if you say there is no God. You're guilty that God, if you say that God is not omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, eternal, and perfectly eternal. These are all good. Three, that the Father is not God, that the Son is not God, that the Holy Ghost is not God, or that these three are not one eternal God, or that Christ is not God equal to the Father. And then we run into problems. The denial of the manhood of Christ, or that the Godhead and manhood are distinct natures, or that the humanity of Christ is pure and unspotted of all sin. The maintaining that Christ did not die, nor rise again, nor ascend into heaven, into heaven bodily. The denying of the death of Christ is Merocious on the behalf of, of believers, or that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the denying of the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the denying of the resurrection of the dead and the future judgment. But like I said, luckily this was not acted upon. So Biddle was in loose confinement. He was still confined, but he was in loose confinement, which allowed him to travel greatly, and he started to act as the chaplain for the justice of the peace, who soon died but left him a legacy. Now, as we know with Charles I and his removal, 
uh, Judge Bradshaw was the president of the High Court of Justice who removed Charles from power. And also, when he found out that the Justice of the Peace had died, put Biddle in prison. So now he was restricted. So after several years in prison, he was actually receiving pay for helping to translate the Book of Daniel from the Septuagint, which gave him a little money to help uh, him when he got out. And he was released in 1654 under the Acts of Oblivion, which was there to help pardon anyone in Charles I's removal from power, but also extended to some of these people who were uh, in prison during the parliament that followed. And when he was released, he set up the Society for Converts for his doctrine and preached every Sunday. But this was all short-lived. And the twofold catechism that he uh, wrote in 1654, it reached Cromwell's parliament. And in early December 1654, Biddle was brought before the parliament and asked if he wrote it. Which I love this answer because it kind of reminds me of, of Jesus with Pilate. Because it's so, uh, why would I accuse myself to have done such a crime? Which it's a very roundabout way of saying, I did, but I'm not going to admit it. On December 13th, 1654, he was sent to Gatehouse Prison, and an attempt was made for further punishment, but he was released by the upper bench six months later. Now we get to the debate that really puts him on the map, and he, was, he, he had been in many debates, but he had always avoided open-air debates because he knew the second he got out there and openly admitted to a large crowd which officials would be in, that would be the end of it. And uh, John Griffin, a Baptist preacher, confronted him on the Trinity because he had gone into basically to, to Griffin's church and now everyone there had been converted and was no longer following Griffin but following Biddle. He challenged him to do a debate at Stone Chapel in St. Paul's Cathedral. But there was too much pressure, so Biddle did go through and decide to do the debate. The chapel was packed. Everyone came. And Griffin opened with the statement, Does any man here deny that Christ is God Almighty? To which Biddle replies, I deny it, and very openly just says it. But this catches Griffin so off guard. Now, Griffin is said to have been an illiterate and incompetent preacher, which was no match for Biddle anyway. Now, this is said by both the Trinitarians who write on it and the Unitarians who write on it, which probably, I don't know if that's necessarily true, which means that Griffin would have been set up as, by officials to catch, to catch Biddle and be able to imprison him, or it means that both sides were totally unhappy with his argument, because after this... After Biddle responds, I do deny it, he calls for a postponement. He doesn't even give a response to this. He basically calls for a postponement and that the debate be moved to July 4th, 1655. And, um, but in the meantime, he works with the officials, and the officials have what they need to put Biddle in prison. And on J July 3rd, day before the debate, they arrest him, and they, just finally, they finally get to use the act that was passed on May 2nd, 1648, to oppose to any of those who oppose the Trinity. But Cromwell, as we know, with him being a Congregationalist, wants to meet and make everyone happy and have everyone vote. And uh, he knows that Biddle, at this point, has many followers and does not want to upset them. But he also doesn't want to upset all the ones who want him to be killed. So instead, he just banishes him to the Isle of Scilly in early October 1655. And not much is known about Biddle there, except that he studies Revelation quite thoroughly. But, but like I said, nothing, not much more is known. In uh, the beginning of 1658, habeas corpus is granted to him, but at this time, so he is freed and he returns to London, but Richard Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell's son, calls a parliamentary session because Oliver Cromwell is now dying. So he's, he's sick, he's dying, Richard Cromwell's son calls a parliamentary session in which many Presbyterian officials who are all foes of Biddle are going to be there and Biddle decides London has become 
too uh, dangerous for him, me, and he escapes to the countryside and enjoys four years of actually just being left alone. He doesn't have much to worry about. He's actually able to correspond much with the Polish brethren who are now uh, sent into exile. So he has much correspondence with them. He's able to have much uh, effectiveness in uh, preaching and getting people to realize that the Trinity is not an accurate uh, doctrine. And they, he uh, is able to, he gets a big following here. But on this, after four years, on June 1st, 1662, the officials had had enough of him. And him, along with several of the members of his congregation, were all arrested. Although no statue of indictment could be held to them, they were all imprisoned until they could pay bail. And members were had a 20-pound bail set upon them, and Biddle had a 100-pound bail set upon him, which, of course, he could not pay. And on September 22nd, 1662, he died of a fever he contracted in prison at 47 years old. So this is, he's a man that has had great influence on very popular members, John Locke, the philosopher who everyone knows, every college professor will talk about John Locke, and John Adams, the second president of the United States, along with Isaac Newton, and people like Nathaniel Lautner, who are given great uh, fame for just being able to read the scripture and look at it in a critical way, and Biddle is behind all of them, yet not a lot is known about him. So I think it's great that we were able to uh, see a lot. Most of his books did not survive. It's very difficult to even find uh, his 12 arguments, even online in the current day, which everything is available. It's very difficult to find his things. John Locke, is, he's the easiest one to find because John Locke actually rewrote his 12 arguments in his own uh, simpler manner. But he doesn't even give much credit to Biddle unless you read much further. Then you kinda, he just, Biddle pops up there for a quick blip, and then that's it. And uh, so that's it. That's all I have to say. But he, he is the one that pushed it this far. And I think Sean has a little more to, to do. All right, so I, I want to, in the time that remains, focus on some other English Unitarians. And John Biddle is known as the father of English Unitarianism, the, the first one who spoke about God being one in the English language and who uh, really started to blaze the trail a little bit, just a little bit. But he was, as we just heard, arrested over and over and over until finally his health failed and then he died in prison. Such a sad story for a great man, you know. As you recall, in 1658 is when the Polish brethren were uh, sent out of Poland by King Casimir. And they made this law that said no, none of the... Uh, people who believe in the one God are allowed to live in Poland anymore. And you remember uh, I told you about how a lot of them went to Transylvania, and some of them went to the Netherlands, and some of them went to England. And so some of these Polish brethren end up in England from this. John Biddle had not gotten his ideas from the Sicinians. He got his ideas from Scripture, and then he corresponded with them. But when they came and, and there was a lot of uh, literature written, people in England started reading it. Now, the, the international language at the time was not English. It was Latin. So what ended up happening is, in the, I, I mentioned this once before, but in 1665, between then and 1668, the Library of the Polish Brethren called Unitarians, a collection of books, was printed in Amsterdam in Latin. 
by the grandson of Fausto Sosini, a guy named Andreas Wazawadi. And this was, uh, since it was in Latin, people in England are able to read it. And we find it in people's libraries later on. I'm going to mention, for example, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton has the, Polish, the library of the Polish Brethren in his book collection. Why, why, is, why does he have it? Because he's educated, he can read Latin, and so he can read these ideas of the Polish Brethren and the Sicinians. So anyhow, I want to mention Daniel Zwicker, uh, who lived from 1612 to 1678. Sorry I don't have paintings on these guys, you know, the kings and the queens. It's easy to find their paintings, isn't it? Daniel Zwicker is a German physician from Danzig. He spent time in Poland in 1657. He ended up in Amsterdam. And so he, he's living through this time when everyone's getting kicked out of Poland. Um, and in 1658, he publishes a book called Arenicum, Arenicorum, which is an examination of Christian theology before the Nicene Creed. And this is really a, a foundation stone for later English Unitarians. Although this gentleman is not English, he's German. And although he's writing in Amsterdam, in Holland, not in England, English Unitarians pick up on his writing in this, this book because it talks about what Christians believe before the year 325 when the Trinity was officially accepted as the belief of Christianity. He's peeling back the layers beneath the time when it was firmly set, everyone believes in the Trinity, and he's saying, well, look, Irenaeus didn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, Tertullian is a subordinationist. He thinks the Father's greater than the Son. You know, and he's pointing these things out, and uh, he becomes influential for that reason. He says that Christ's divinity was the invention of the heretics, and that Christianity just got it wrong. And so, in George, gentleman George Bull refuted him, refuted Daniel Zwicker, um, in his primitive and apostolic tradition. And this all, all happens around the time of 1687 to... 1702, when we have the Sicinian controversy. This is a very interesting period of time in England because the Sicinian controversy happens between Anglican believers. Everyone in the controversy is part of the Church of England. This is not a group of separatists who are trying to start the first Unitarian Church of England. These are Anglicans. These are Church of England people who are reading these things and coming to question the doctrine of the Trinity for the whole of the Church of England, not to start their own group. If these guys have been successful, Anglicans, Episcopalians, those 85 million I had mentioned, would all be Unitarian today. That's how uh, big this was. And so between the years 1687 and 1702, I'm just going to give you the highlights, okay? And what we have is a lot of anonymous pamphlet literature. So people are writing short essays. Some people are writing whole books. But on the Unitarian side, people are not signing their name at the bottom of it. Because they saw what happened to John Biddle, and they're not interested in going to jail. They want the ideas to get out there, but they don't want really the credit for them. Okay, and so in 1687, 25 years after Biddle's death, a gentleman, Stephen Nye, 1648 to 1719, publishes his book called A Brief History of the Unitarians, also called Socinians, anomalously. And he traced the Unitarian beliefs from the early church. He's like, look, these people always just believe the Father is the only true God. They always believe that. And he's quoting from the early church. He's showing proof. Uh, he's refuting the the typical verses Trinitarians use to prove the Trinity. Uh, 
And he's concluding that no one should persecute Unitarians, but all should receive them as brethren. And I have a quote here for you. This is from Earl Morse Wilbur on this controversy that broke out in England over whether or not Jesus is God, whether or not the Father is the only true God. He writes, The crucial question in the controversy was as to what it meant by one God in three persons. When the Unitarians urged that this belief, by its own words, contradicts itself, some tried to remove the difficulty by explaining that persons means just what we usually mean by the word. In other words, different people, right? But the Unitarians replied that this involves belief in three separate gods. That's what we call tritheism or polytheism. Clearly an unchristian belief. Others sought to show that persons has here a special meaning and simply means three different modes of being or acting. But it was replied that this was the ancient heresy of Sabellianism and that Christ means something more than merely God's mode of acting. So the controversy went on with the Unitarians ever keen to detect any flaw in the reasoning of the Orthodox and ready to press every advantage against them. The controversy ended the acute stage of it at least when the authorities of the church at least seemed to accept an explanation of the Trinity to which the Unitarians could assent with good conscience. So kind of called a draw in the end. In 1689, we have the Act of Tolerance. Or, or sorry, Act of Toleration. It's significant because it tolerates all these different religious beliefs so long as you agree to the 39 articles and the doctrine of the Trinity. So it tolerates everyone but the people I'm talking about. And so in 1690, I'm just going to kind of cruise through here a bunch of uh, different people that did things here. Arthur Burry wrote the book, The Naked Gospel, Ooh. arguing that we need to free the gospel from later corruptions. And though he wasn't a Unitarian, his writing was compatible with the Unitarians because they're saying, yeah, that's what we're saying. Just take the Bible. Forget all the creeds. Forget all the corruptions. Forget all the later Christian writers. Just take the, the, the Bible by itself. And so his book ends up getting burned. Better to have your book burned than yourself burned. So that's actually an improvement. 1693, William Freak wrote a brief but clear confutation of the doctrine of the Trinity and sent it to both houses of parliament. A very bold move. It's like writing a book against the Trinity and sending it to the Pope. I actually know somebody that did that. Um, parliament arrested him and burnt his book forced him to recant and pay 500 pounds. Meanwhile, on the other side, on the Trinitarian side, they're writing their books and their pamphlets. And we have this thing going back and forth. In 1695, John Smith wrote a book called A Designed End to the Sicinian Controversy, or A Rational and Plain Discourse that no other person but the Father of Christ is God Most High. I love their titles. They're so long and explanatory. You don't have to question. You don't have to read the table of contents to see what the book is about. It's just very clear, right? A discourse that no other person but the Father of Christ is God Most High. And this John Smith, actually, this is not uh, the, uh, another John Smith, the founder of the Baptist. This is a different one. Um, he actually put his name on, it, on the book. He had the guts to do that. Whereas uh, normally it was anonymous, and uh, he was arrested and forced to recant and publish a statement saying that he 
was sorry that he ever wrote this book and he doesn't believe in it. In 1695, Gilbert Clerk wrote a book. Oh, boy. I think it's all in Latin. I attempted an English translation. I'll just read that to you. Third tract about those who spoke before Nicaea. So, again, the, the battle is what happened before the Trinity became the official belief of the church? What did they believe in those early years, in the second century, in the third century? And then in 1695, we have John Locke. And uh, he lives from 1632 to 1704 and writes a book, The Reasonableness of Christianity, and he himself is a Unitarian, a biblical Unitarian. In other words, he is biblically conservative. He believes in verbal inspiration. He believes that reason and faith are totally compatible with each other. And he advocated religious tolerance. He spent some time in Holland with the Sassanians over there and uh, had even written a letter of toleration in 1689. But in 1695, this book, he says that anyone who considers Jesus as Messiah should be accepted as a Christian. And he also is friends with Isaac Newton, another English Unitarian from this period, famous for his theory on gravity, the mathematician and Precipia. He convinces Newton to write uh, a very powerful anti-Trinitarian tract, and Newton writes it, but then never publishes it. In 1697, we have the Blasphemy Act. It sounds like Pakistan, doesn't it? We have blasphemy laws, and if you, if you criticize Muhammad, you can be put to death. In 1697, in England, they had their own Blasphemy Act, which confirmed religious intolerance to Unitarians, made it a crime for any person educated or having made a profession in the Christian religion by writing, preaching, teaching, or advised speaking to deny the Holy Trinity. If you deny the Trinity, it's a civil crime from 1697 onwards. And if, if that's the case, then you can forget any political hopes you have because you're not allowed to hold any pu public office whatsoever. On a second offense, you lose your civil rights forever and you go to prison for three years. This is all after the period of John Biddle. This, this act of 1697, in 1812, the Trinitarian Act gave toleration for Unitarians in England. So from 1697 to 1812, it was illegal to believe God is one, not three, in the country of England. Well, it's not illegal to believe it, but if you say it, then it's illegal. And then it wasn't until 1967 that the Blasphemy Act was finally repealed in England. Then in 1702, that's 1697. In 1702, despite the fact you can go to jail for this, Thomas Emlyn writes a book called An Humble Inquiry into the Scriptural Account of Jesus Christ. He publishes it anonymously, and he's sentenced to prison for one year on the charge of blasphemy and charged a thousand pounds. A ridiculous sum that no one would ever be able to pay. Maybe the king, but that's about it. In 1705, he was released over two years later after he had been arrested, uh, and he only paid 90 pounds because someone intervened and helped to get him out. And he writes the following. He said, I thank God that he did not call me to this lot of suffering till I had arrived at maturity of judgment and firmness of resolution, ere I, that I, he did not desert me when my friends did. He never let me be so cast down as to renounce the truth or to waver in my faith. 
That's what he said about his own journey there after he had been arrested for teaching that God is one. Then from uh, the same period, we have Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton is a fascinating person, a mathematician, a professor at Cambridge, I believe, and a scientist. He sees an apple fall. He comes up with the equations for gravity. I mean, that's really quite remarkable, isn't it? And so Isaac Newton is a very strong Bible-believing person who does more theology than science, and nobody really knows it because he doesn't publish any of it. But since his death, people have found his writings, and there is uh, a Christadelphian gentleman by the name of Snowblin who's put all these things up on the, on the Internet, on the Newton Project. And so you, you can see for yourself, you can actually see his original writings in Latin, and many of them are also translated into English, that he believed that God is one. He did not believe in the Trinity. He was against it. He wrote against it. He just didn't publish anything. In his library, they found eight Sassanian books, and he also wrote a book against uh, what Shauna mentioned before, the corruption in 1 John 5, 7 that, that kind of inserts the Trinity into the Bible, a verse that's taken out of all modern translations of the Bible. Um, he wrote against that as well. Then we have William Whiston, just rounding out our English Unitarians here. Um, got two more after him. 1667 to 1752, he's a theologian, a historian, a mathematician. He becomes a professor of mathematics at Cambridge after Newton. He, anybody who goes to any bookstore in America and buys the book uh, uh, called Josephus, the collected writings of Josephus, this is the guy that translated it. Still very well sold in America today, at least I don't know about other countries. But um, Whiston translated Josephus' writings, the Antiquities of the Jews, the War of the Jews, into English. In uh, 1710, he got kicked out of the university because he did not believe in the Trinity. And he lectured in halls and coffee houses in London, Bath, and Tunbridge Wells. Until uh, 1747, he's in a church service in the Church of England, and they start reading out the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is a Trinitarian creed that focuses on the dual natures of Christ. And while they're reading out the creed, he says, I'm done with this. He leaves the Church of England, and he joins the Baptists. That's William Whiston. Samuel Clark, same period, 1675 to 1729, maybe a little bit later, is a philosopher. He is the major figure for philosophy between Locke and Berkeley, or uh, Barclay is how they say his name. He's a Church of England clergyman who wrote in 1712, the Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, a very significant book, has three parts to it. Part one of Samuel Clark's book, he explains every verse in the New Testament that relates to the Trinity. Every verse, he explains what it, what it means. Part two, he explains the doctrine and he sets forth these propositions. Part three, he examines the Church of England's liturgy, specifically in the Book of Common Prayer. In his book, The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, he refers to 1,251 verses. He's a moderate Arian, which means he believes in the preexistence of Christ, but he's a non-Trinitarian, which means that uh, he's a subordinationist. He thinks the Father is greater than the Son. They're not both equal. Christ did not always exist. Um, in 1719, there is a debate about whether or not you need to subscribe to the Confession or not. And then finally, in 1773, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, we have Theophilus Lindsay, 
who lives from 1723 to 1808. But in 1773, he founds the first Unitarian congregation in England at Essex Street Chapel in London in 1773, where it still stands today. So that's a history of English Unitarians, and some of these people have remarkable stories that are inspiring others. We just know the name of their book. <laughs> and uh, the victors always write the history, don't they? But uh, so we're, we're trying to sort of dig up some of these less known people. Next time we'll look at the Catholic Counter-Reformation and the missionary work of the Jesuits, as well as Christianity in America and how it came here and what groups were involved in the founding of America. So we'll see you next week. Well, thanks for tuning in. Next time we'll look at a very, very brief summary view of Catholicism's development over the last 500 years. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.